everyone, welcome back to the Storying History Literary Voices podcast. I'm Elsie, your presenter, and today we're going to be focusing on voices in Dutch literature. Today on the podcast, I've got two very special, exciting guests. First up, we've got primary school teacher Britt van der Heijn, and we've got the author and publisher Hilary Baker. Hi guys, how are you feeling to be on the podcast today? Oh, well, thanks for having us, Elsie. I'm feeling very excited to be on the podcast today. Um, I think it's a really interesting topic and I'm, I'm excited to dive deeper into this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having us. It's certainly an honour to be on uh, the podcast. And yeah, I'm also very excited for today's topic. So today we're going to be working our way through three works of Dutch literature and discussing their importance in the cultural archive and kind of how appropriate they are for children. So do you guys want to tell us a bit about the works that you've chosen today? So the work I have chosen is um, a book called um, Ben, um, which literally translates in English to sort of um, how beautifully white I am. It's a book written by um, the Dutch author Dolph Faroon and he's sort of like been coined the the grand old man of Dutch children's literature. So he was born in 1928 and his book was actually... Um, first published under the name Slav Kincher Slav and that was in 2005 but then it was republished in 2016 um, under the name um, Humoy Vitik Ben which it's now known so it was published by a small um, another Dutch publisher um, Ger Geus and um, it, it was a book that went largely unnoticed in the Netherlands unlike the books that you will have um, chosen and will be speaking about later it's a 72 page um, book and it's sort of style is denouncing racism and it's quite a direct style um, with illustrations by um, the illustrator Martijn van der Linde and it was aimed at like sort of nine to 12 year olds and the author's um, quite involved with sort of the psychology of children and things to do with their education so he takes like children's development quite seriously and he can empathize with them it's also because he um gave quite a few lectures at schools and he like has regular contact with his readership um and like he's even now he's still in his he's in his 80s um but he still manages to sort of connect with that age group quite well and um he's got a lot of imagination in his stories um like absurdity humor and just like simple things like that are effective but the use of his language make his books accessible to like sort of children and adults alike. That sounds like a really interesting story and I'm really excited to see what contributions it can make to the discussion. So Hilary, do you want to tell us about the book that you've brought in today? Yeah, definitely. So I have been reading um, Al Slava Geborgen. Yes, yeah, so this one was published in uh, December of 2014 um, by the author Marianne Hufnagel. Uh, she is a Dutch teacher and linguist who's worked at the AGM Bell College in Amsterdam since n- 1989. And she's written a series of books for teenagers, uh, which focus on some of the major topics that affect the teenage years, um, including like dating, drinking, pregnancies, um, but also some of the more extreme topics, including incest and honour killings. But this book uh, specifically is following the story of three generations of slaves who live on a plantation and um, in this book we sort of see eight consecutive days which follow the lives of these slaves um, and yeah and it contains some flashbacks so we can see um, what happened in the grandmother's life particularly when she was transported on a ship from Africa at the age of 14 so it's really quite shocking 
And we also see some more about her grandchildren who live on the plantation alongside their mum. And they're also um, 14. So we're sort of seeing this comparison of people of the age of 14 with the grandmother and like her experience at the age of 14 and with the twins, um, her grandchildren, Maisie and Kvasi, um, who are also, as I say, 14. The book uh, focuses on like ordinary topics. So sort of their emotions towards love and romance I guess but and the wanting of a better life but obviously um in this book we see you know it's a much more extreme level compared to most 14 year olds so it's very interesting but very tragic and yeah interestingly the plantation is called pay and fray um which is very ironic uh, given the status of the slaves who are working on the plantation um they're not at all free um they're very much inf- like forced to work there um so I think that that you know, even mentioning this in the foreword sort of um, sort of sets the impression for the whole book and how, um, yeah, how it's it's very it's very difficult to read. It's very it's a bit ironic, um, and as an audience today, we can yeah we can see the irony of what's happening. Thanks, Hilary. The book that I'm going to be talking about is Kwaku by um, Inek Mok, and the illustrations by Eric Hervel. It's published in 2022, so it's very new. And it's, yeah, a graphic novel about the interwoven colonial legacies of both the Netherlands and Britain. And it's actually about, based on a true story about, um, yeah, Kwaku the boy. And his life was documented by John Gabriel Stedman in his diary about his voyage um, to Suriname. And the author, Inek Mok, uh, reconstructed the novel by like piecing together lots of bits of history and information that she'd found about life on the plantations paired with uh, John Stedman's um, documentation. So just to give a background to Suriname, which is where all of the works are set, um, at the end of the 18th century, 90% of the populations there were enslaved. And obviously lots of people were fleeing from the plantations and the horrible treatment that they received there. Uh, The escaped slaves that live in the jungle were called the Marons, and they would often raid the plantations to get food to survive. And one of the famous rebel leaders from the the escaped plantations was called Boney, and we'll probably refer to him again later because he's a great example of resistance against uh, slavery and colonisation. Um, just a quick disclaimer before you start listening, some of the language and uh, topics covered in this podcast are very outdated and will probably be quite triggering. So if you feel affected by any of what you hear in the podcast, we'll link some resources that are available to you. Um, and we're always open to hear um, feedback and your own opinions on what we're covering. If we take a look at the front covers and the blurbs of the books, what can you guys tell us about them before like opening them and looking inside? So um, I'll just read an uh, extract from the blurb of the book I have brought in, um, Vitic Ben, because I feel like it gives sort of just an um, overview of um, what is to come when you actually get to reading the book. Maria gets a slave for her 12th birthday. It's convenient. Slaves have to do what you say. You can beat them, dress them up or sell them. Maria doesn't know any better. Her life revolves around pretty dresses, tea parties, and sitting neatly upright, just like that of her mother and her aunts. Why should she look beyond the luxury life she's used to? Everything's fine the way it is, isn't it? So as a blur, I find that quite striking. And I think it really highlights that um, this is a book that's not so direct with what it's trying to say i think the way that the blurb finishes with those sort of questions suggests that it's more of up to interpretation 
obviously it is a children's book so these kind of questions might be a bit cryptic for that sort of audience but I think that Furun with this blurb is trying to hint at the fact that it's not going to be sort of a straightforward um, blunt description of slavery and like the sort of dichotomy between the white and the um, black people in these times so the questions do sort of give an element of bringing your own interpretation into it and then if we um, pair it with the front cover of the version that was published in 2016 because as I said earlier Mm. um, it's got the new title Humoy Vitek Ben instead of Slavkin Slav they also changed a lot of the illustrations and changed the um, front cover yeah the um, blurb of Humoy Vitek Ben kind of links to the one of Kwaku as well in that it doesn't quite tell you exactly all the like bad parts of the story I guess because the Kwaku blurb kind of makes it sound like an adventure it's got phrases like ruthlessly kidnapped um, military missions risks losing his true love and it sounds like quite exciting to read honestly but in reality when you open it you know that it was not exciting it was horrifying for a bit of background explanation on um the novel that it was based on um it was john gabriel stedman's account called the narration of a five-year expedition against the revolted negroes of Suriname, and it's set in the colonial times um both in Suriname on the plantations and also in the netherlands Yeah, speaking of the audience today, we're next going to move on to the actual inside of the books and talk about what audience the books should be aiming at. Okay, so let's tackle the age-old question. What kind of audience should these books be aiming at? Because, so when I was researching what age Quacker was aimed at, it seems to have a lot of conflicting audiences. The only general consensus that I could get is that it's aimed at key stage three. But even on the website, it has some things say it's 11 plus or 12 to 15. The education pack that comes with the book is age 12 to 16. And then on the website, it also says written for a wide audience, those between 10 and 110. So we guess that in general, it's kind of aimed at students. But honestly, the age is not too specific. Yeah, I, I think that's quite an interesting point, um, which links to my book quite heavily because mm. um, Furun is... He's quite vague with what his audience is meant to be and it's sort of a um, leaving everything up to the reader is a very you pick style, you interpret it how you want to. So um, I previously mentioned that he he calls it a confrontational book that denounces racism and he says it's in a direct style, which I guess it could be, but that would suggest it's too harsh for young children. Mm. Um, Or I guess that might just be an opinion um, or his opinion. You'd expect a children's author writing about sort of these dark days of slavery to make it explicitly clear to a reader, especially if they're so young, how wrong slavery is. Because mm. I think books do have quite a big influence on one's education. So obviously in schools and things, um, children have access to a lot of these books. So if we're not explicitly clear to a reader, um, especially so young, how wrong slavery was, I think that's quite a controversial thing to not be so explicit especially when you're talking about a topic as sensitive as slavery and sort of what um, I found unusual about this book is that Furun he calls it a direct style but he doesn't really explicitly say how wrong slavery is and he wants to let his readers judge for themselves Um, so he has Maria the young white privileged 
girl narrate the story to get this element of like detachment and like emotionless description Mm. of what's going on so I think that is something that I'm not quite sure where I stand on as to whether you know we need something more direct when discussing such sensitive topics um with such young people yeah I think I've found similarly with the book I was reading that I was looking on library websites to see what sort of age category these books were aimed at and they were saying sort of 12 to 18 and I sort of yeah I found this was a very it's a very broad age category yeah there's just people of like such different ages I mean the differences between like even like 12 to 14 or 14 to 16 or even 16 to 18 it's just really vast so the category is not really it's not really clear about exactly who it's aimed at uh, the book that I was reading, El Aslava Khabora, is part of a series of books called Fiatin de Tied Vanyeleva. And so I guess that this maybe suggests that it's aimed for 14 year olds. And obviously, the emphasis on the number of 14 year olds in the book um, could also relate to this. But I think it's a very interesting topic of whether who it's appropriate for and who we talk about these mature topics with. Is it appropriate to talk about with younger children? Um, and I think it's kind of clear that um, some things are a bit, maybe a little bit too explicit, especially if they're anticipating 12-year-olds reading this book and perhaps these things should be maybe less explicit. So then it's something that if somebody's mature enough to understand, they could read between the lines and understand it. Whereas when it's so explicit, it's, yeah, I think maybe that makes it inappropriate for younger audiences. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with how difficult it is having such a broad age category because my book is sort of got this age 12 to 18 um I wouldn't say 18 year olds have or 12 year olds even have the same breadth of knowledge as an 18 year old would have yeah so I think in a way um the way Dolphurun hasn't specifically said that he's got an age category for his book is in a way a good thing because then it leaves it up to a parent maybe or a teacher to allow their children to have access to this and to read this book um and then obviously it's their responsibility to make sure that it's appropriate for their child but there have been some occasions where the fact that it didn't have a specific age category um made it difficult with what was considered appropriate by the author but what was considered appropriate by parents and schools and things um so it is a very um subjective topic and yeah something to be definitely considered further there's definitely a really fine line between it being explicit enough that like young children can understand it but also not being too like scarring I guess but one thing that all of our books have that caters towards children is that they all have illustrations and I wanted to ask in what way do you think that that medium kind of changes what age that they're aimed at because um in Kwaku we've got a lot of simplicity like the images are paired with text there's not much text on the page it's mainly all pictures I think that really engages a lot of students especially ones that don't normally enjoy reading and also the comic genre kind of adds a lot of extra information instead of just having like pages of text it's got like little bits of dialogue like captions above the illustrations and also like little thought bubbles for example on page 24 while the captain's speaking Kwaku's thinking Mutik vechan varom yeah he doesn't know why he has to leave like the thought bubbles let us really see inside his thoughts and yeah it kind of adds some dramatic irony because the audience kind of knows why he has to leave but they feel even more sorry for him that he really has no idea and he can't even voice his thoughts he just has to keep them to himself do you think that's something that is a bit too cryptic that would need like this element of interpretation that a young child can't 
really get because I found an example of a woman from um, Zeeland. Um, so she sort of added this author, um, Dolphin, saying that I don't think it's acceptable to let nine-year-old children read this book. They don't understand this yet and can't research this on the internet. And then that was quite something quite interesting to get this perspective from the nine-year-old sister um, who wrote this. Clearly, she'd found that um, her sister had been quite um, triggered by this. And I think the background information and hidden messages of the book, not that easy for children to understand, especially if they don't know what words mean. Um, and this obviously leads on to the inclusion of pictures in the book. I think what I'll get onto in a bit is that the inclusion of pictures um, makes it a lot easier for um, children to make their own interpretations because often there's sort of words they're not going to understand. Um, Dolph, the author of Humoy Vitikben, actually had a reaction to this woman. Um, he said, Ich liche wel eens wakker van als ik hoor dat mensen het verkeerd begrijpen. So he's sort of saying he lies awake at night when he hears that people have interpreted his works in the wrong way. And I think mm. that's something he should have been open to when he wrote this book. It's such a sensitive topic, but also it, he, wrote, he wrote it in sort of such a cryptic way that he had to be prepared for some people not to understand this. Um, but he also says, Ich find dat de taak is van een leerkracht of ouder. He's emphasizing that it's the job of a parent or a teacher to educate. Mm. Um, and the book is just a supplementation of something more emotional and sort of a side story to the actual factual history that needs to be told to school-age children, um, which I find something quite moving about that. But obviously it gets lost in, sometimes literally lost in translation. And um, yeah, I think it's something that he maybe needs to do some more interviews or some more something like that to actually get the message across that this isn't a book trying mm. to educate its more entertainment purposes, with the historical background yeah i think the thing about whether it's a parent or the teacher's job to educate the child on the book is really important because like the fact that kwaku is drawn with like so many images it kind of is available for a child to read on their own but i don't think that would be appropriate because they wouldn't really probably get the full story of what was going on and they'd have so many questions and the question of whether a parent could read it with them is quite a complicated one because i don't know if i'd feel like comfortable reading that as like a bedtime story to my child it's a bit covering really complicated topics and you'd need to be very educated on it in order to explain it in the right way so I think it's more of a book to be taught in schools than to be read by parents but yeah it's definitely important that someone is there to interpret the book with the child and that they're not just reading it on their own yeah I think that's it's coming back to this idea of how difficult it is to make the book explicit but also to protect children from topics that are too mature for them um i think in in slava khabora i found the images are quite abstract um and so without any prior knowledge of this topic of slavery um, and of what took place these pictures probably wouldn't i don't think children could take very much from these images i don't think they'd understand a lot by them with prior knowledge these images are quite impactful for example the um, image on the front of the um, book on the cover I think it's arguably subtle, but also arguably quite impactful. We sort of see this pregnant woman with a handprint on her stomach that's half black and half white. And this is making reference to children born into slavery with a mother who is enslaved and a father who is a master on the plantation. Yeah, I think this is very impactful because it sort of shows this this identity that these slaves have of being sort of half, they have a parent in slavery and a parent um, who is 
owning this slave they'll never really be fully free despite actually having um, a father who's actually a master and is seen as superior I think we see a little bit in the book that sometimes these slaves were given more a bit more privilege we see a sort of distinction between children who were born to two parents who were slaves and children who were born to um, a parent who was a slave owned by a master regarding the topic of freedom um there's a quote at the end of the Kwaku book, which is, Ik ben vrij, eindelijk naar huis. So he's very excited to be finally leaving. But I think that one problem I have with the book is the ending and whether he actually does gain freedom and does get to leave. It might be quite hard to understand for a child, like the handprint in the book that Hilary's talking about. The cover of the book shows Kwaku escaping with his belongings. And this is also a scene from the end of the book, which kind of suggests like a cyclical nature that he actually hasn't escaped. And at the side of the front cover, you see a little snake in the corner, which kind of grabs your attention. It looks quite scary and could definitely be seen as a metaphor for like the white people. And the scared look on his face paired with that does suggest that he will be captured again. So I do find it a bit yeah, hard to understand for a child. It kind of has no moral conclusion in a way. Yeah, I think I found that your books, um, Elsie and Hillary, the illustrations did add this element of interpretation where the words seem more direct and I feel that Humoivitic Ben differs from that a bit given the book didn't actually have as much recognition as other books at the time is why it's not as commonly known but I found that a different illustrator was chosen um, for the second edition and I'm not exactly sure why I sort of thought it could be that Farun had a very clear idea of his readers and how they should be interpreting the text and he didn't like the fact that the illustrations left less room for interpretation and gave Coco who is one of the main characters who's enslaved um, more of a voice and in an interview with um, NRC in 2006 he had just won um, this German literature prize and he said that he deliberately chose not to add um, a commentary voice and said, Kinderen hebben geen afkeurende stem nodig om te snappen dat dingen niet deugen. So that's sort of saying he believes children should be given more credit for what interpretations they can make and what understanding they have of right and wrong. So he deliberately chose to have more of an interpretive style of writing because he thought children should be able to and would be able to make like to come to their own conclusions and it's maybe parents or teachers who are holding them back with what they actually can understand i think this is um definitely the case because i was having a discussion about this the other day um with someone and i think as much as children do have to make some interpretations for themselves i think if children don't read these books and don't feel um you know there's clearly it's clearly wrong it's not morally right what happened to slaves if they don't read that and interpret that for themselves um there's probably not a lot that can be done uh, to change their opinion especially when you come into this sort of teenage age it obviously is a really important age for impacting children's opinion for the rest of their lives and i think what one of the things that makes these books so interesting is the confusion we're having over what age they're aimed at when these books stack like the language used is really quite basic compared to the very mature themes that we see in the books mm. um i i think this is potentially quite a positive thing for students at school who are of low academic ability um because they are at a stage where they're mature enough to understand these topics but with language it was more complex they wouldn't you know it wouldn't be something they could understand so actually these books would be quite positive for these yeah. um children and be quite useful in school as they were quite 
like inclusive of people of different abilities. I think when we've got such a mature topic, maybe actually having basic language is a positive thing. Yeah, what you're saying about them being used in schools is really interesting because when Quacker was published, it actually came with a educational pack for teachers to use in their classrooms, which is really, really useful. It's got a lot of, um, it's got disclaimers of like the racial slurs and the violence, and it promotes a lot of asking of open-ended questions, discussion of different statements, and also gets the students to kind of put themselves in the shoes of others and question their own actions. For example, one of the questions in the pack is... Is it gedrag van burgers die gedachteloos koffie met suiker dronken wezenlijk anders dan dat van mensen die nu kleding kopen bij Primark? And yeah, I think that's a really good um, way to kind of promote the thinking of children, like how slavery has repercussions on nowadays, because it's such a big topic, it sometimes can be really hard for them to understand and ever like empathize with. So making them think about it in terms of they live their lives today is a really um, evocative way to kind of educate them on this, such a tough issue. So building on from this point, we're now going to go on to think about how relevant the texts are to discussions nowadays. I've been researching a really interesting concept that is really prevalent in today's discussion about the cultural archive and slavery, and that is Saeeda Hartman's term uh, critical fabulation. Um, Hilary, I know you've done a lot of research into this. Could you tell us a bit about what this term means? Because it is quite a encompassing concept. Yeah, definitely. I think it's quite hard to define. I think some of the definitions I found of Sahidja Hartman herself, she said it was the exercise of imagining beauty and um, other on- online definitions have suggested that it's creative semi-nonfiction that attempts to bring the suppressed voices of the past to the surface by means of detailed research and scattered facts. So I think what we could say about critical fabulation is that it's a fictional portrayal of facts that allows us to connect more personally to historical facts and reflect on the emotions of the people involved. In the instance of slavery, um, it gives us more deeper and like more profound uh, understanding of what took place and how the people felt who were impacted by this. I think the way that that definition mentions the sort of scattered facts um, really applies to Dolphurun and Humoivetic Ben. He's quite fond of critical fabulation. Um, his philosophy is sort of that those who can't analyse text for themselves shouldn't be reading it without an education from their parents. And this obviously goes back to the audience that it's targeted at. So he's given a voice to those who need it, but he's not feeding it to children on a silver platter or whatever he's forcing them to make their own judgments about what's right and wrong um and i think that's something quite powerful yeah that concept of giving a voice to people that have never really been given one before is definitely related to kwaku as well a quote from hartman that i found about critical fabulation is that it would not be far-fetched to consider stories as a form of compensation or even as reparations and this is quite a profound quote I'm not sure if everyone would feel the same way that it counts as reparations, but in a way it certainly does because in Kwaku, he's been given a voice for the first time. The story had never been translated before. It had never really been heard from his point of view before. And um, it was reconstructed out of historical snippets. So we kind of knew from Stedman's work what like the main events that happened and the treatment that the black people received, but their exact kind of words and thoughts and feelings They've kind of had to be invented by um, 
in Ekmok. So in a way, we're creating a reality through these stories and through critical fabulation to kind of learn about the black experience. And maybe you could also argue that there's always going to be a degree of fabulation in history, especially for children, because like you said, you can't always present it to them exactly how it is. It sometimes has to be sugarcoated a little bit or glossed over to make it not too harrowing for them, I guess. But at the same time, they do have to see the truth of how things actually happened. I think, yeah, on the point of reparations, I think this is really, it's a really relevant um, theme, particularly today. We've got, there's a lot of discussions taking place about colonialism and the reparations that it's necessary to make. It's also about this sort of, this recognition and then obviously apology. And obviously we've seen this in the Netherlands recently um, with the apology of Mark Rutt. I've taken a little snippet of what he said. Het belangrijkste is nu dat we alle stappen die we gaan zetten ook echt gezamenlijk zetten in overleg luisteren en met als enige intentie rest doen aan het verleden heling in het gedeelte in komen geen punt and I think yeah from this obviously we're saying this is the beginning of the conversations about colonialism obviously these books alone and um, that we've read are not going to be enough for what has happened there you know it's the beginning of the acknowledgement and it's sort of giving a voice to the people who haven't had it before but then now giving them an opportunity to take the stage for themselves to um, speak about their ancestors and I think also the impact that colonialism still has um, on society today and yeah and also the benefits that we all like reap from it from without knowing yeah like it's just an unconscious part of our society part of the the way in which our nation is sort of run I think I hadn't really considered it um Hillary until you just mentioned that it was the voices of the people who um were infected by um I guess colonialization or slavery that get to tell their stories now but I've sort of considering how Dolphurun wasn't someone that was impacted by that um so it really comes to who gets to tell their story and whether it's the right of an author like him to tell this story not from the point of view of someone who was actually directly um, impacted by this and I think also the Ein Komma Geen Punt from um, Mark Rutter was something that was relevant to Humoi Wittig Ben because it's such an unpleasant story. But the opinion of Farun is sort of that it's so unpleasant that it needs to continue to be told. And that's what the Geen Punt is all about. You know, this is not just one book, that it's a book that needs to be taken into account with, you know, more research into like the history and the atrocities that happened and also into first-hand experiences I guess of from people ancestors or people who are still impacted by that today and the book Humoy Vitig Ben is quite focused on making people feel uncomfortable and making people make these interpretations which is I think why it's not so direct so the main character um, Maria doesn't know any better than that black people are inferior sort of the underlying story and you can't even blame her because that's just what people were taught to think in those times but I think now um, it's about changing the narrative and um, showing people that although that was acceptable at the time we need to acknowledge that people can make changes and it's why I don't think he makes the book so direct and he forces children to make their own interpretations and make their own judgment of what's right and wrong. Yeah, what you said about um, Dolph Varun being not having experienced the same prejudice that um, the characters in his book have, um, that issue is the same in Kwaku because 
neither Inek Mok nor Eric Herville has experienced anything like that. They're both white as well. So, um, yeah, it's a big debate of whether they should be allowed to tell his story if they can't resonate with it. But I think it's great that they gave him a story and a face in the first place and told it from his perspective like it never had been before. And the text's main purpose is very clear that it should educate young people about history. Although it would be better that maybe the experience could be told by someone whose voice has been marginalised or someone who is close to the experience, it's still good that someone's telling it and that Quackle's voice is being amplified so that as many people in as many countries as possible can hear his story. Yeah, I would agree with the book I read. Um, the author is also a white woman. So I think, I guess it also, it just brings up this issue again. It's really, I mean, it's great that we've got um, these stories being told and people are becoming more educated on this. But of course, it like comes to the question of like whether or not they take it too far um, with critical fabulation. For example, in the book Aslava Khabora, we see Maisa um, is affected by sexual violence, but because she's a victim of enslavement and of the system that she lives in, she doesn't respond in the way that we would expect, or that's how the author suggests, you know, suggests that actually she actually wasn't that upset about what happened. And I think you could argue that maybe the author's taking this a little bit too far and getting delving a bit too deep into the emotions of someone that, you know, of something they don't have firsthand experience mm. of. I think it's really important to see those aspects, but I guess it's just making sure we maintain historical uh, accuracy so that it's not too far-fetched. Yeah, it sounds like all the texts that we've been looking at are really rich in things to analyse and could start so many different conversations but we've got to wrap it up so to conclude do you guys think that these texts are good tools to decolonize our curriculum and our society and talk about colonial relations in an accurate way um yeah I was thinking on that note about my experience with colonialism racism slavery in schools and how in Britain especially even now I think it's still a very taboo subject like despite being in the 21st century where racism um, movements like Black Lives Matter are very prevalent um, it's quite shocking that we don't get taught things like that and mm. for Britain obviously the Netherlands has recently made um, a formal apology to its old um, colonial territories but it's taken a long time for Britons to admit the crimes um, of colonialism that they um, took out. So it's no surprise that young Brits are taught to be proud of how Brits were innovative, sailed the seas, discovered new lands and things like that. Because I think um, Brits have this view of how it's too brutal to tell young children these narratives, um, even though they are the truth. So I think my question is, why is this part of the curriculum being falsely taught um surely it would even be better to maybe not mention it i think that's something i struggle with and they'd need some reforms to allow a book like humoy vitic ben if it was ever translated into english they definitely need some educational reforms to allow it to slot into the knowledge that um british children would already have about the horrors of like sort of the colonial era um, so I think it's great that Dolphurun allows this aspect of own decision making and interpretation for children. But if it were to be translated into English um, in a country like the UK, there definitely needs some supplementation from the school system to make sure that this book doesn't get interpreted wrongly. Yeah, I agree. I think these books are really helpful and are definitely something that I think um, I think I would have liked to have read these in school, potentially not at the age that is recommended. Um, perhaps a little bit older but I think they've been very useful because I think there's a real lack 
of focus on colonialism in the um, curriculum at school and there's definitely this focus of yeah the uh, the British people as pioneers and other Europeans and yeah I think that's definitely it's really important to contextualize these books and also for this not to be the only source of information where people learn about colonialism I think any um, resolutions or solutions to this um, problem are going to take a long time to be put in place because the ignorance is quite widespread and there's a lot of not just children but adults just have absolutely no idea of the vastness or the brutality of slavery yeah I think definitely changes made to the curriculum would be helpful I think it needs to spread to other corners of society so potentially with government officials and other academics you see this being brought more into mainstream society so that so that people are more aware of what's happening because we can't really expect we can't expect people to be passionate or indignant about what happened with colonialism if they don't actually know what happened so i think yeah we need to bring it into more mainstream society i think a good place to start is with schools because a young age people are a lot more impressionable and that is a really important point in um somebody's life to impact their views for the rest of their life yeah, I think that to truly decolonise our curriculums, the teachers need to have as many resources as possible um, to allow them to show their students black history. Because obviously, as we all know, in school, we've been often shown white people as the heroes, the pioneers, like discovering the Americas. In reality, we as white people have to play our part in amplifying black experiences to the world. I think that these works are very comprehensive descriptions of the Dutch plantation economy and what it was like to live on it. Um, interestingly, Kwaku was also voted as one of the top seven literature stories of the year on the low countries website which i think is really promising because it shows that it's considered a very key work in kind of the cultural archive of the netherlands and that it's hopefully its image is being widely distributed and that it's going to gain traction and kind of raise awareness about the topic for hopefully a wide wider audience in the future these works are definitely key discussion starters to kind of shed light on aspects of history that have historically been whitewashed which is sadly still very much true in our society today. I think we kind of have come to the end of our podcast for today. Did you guys have any final comments you wanted to make on the discussion? I think it would just be that this has been a really stimulating discussion. And I think us having this discussion hopefully prompts other people to have the discussion with maybe their relatives who are older and don't have the same opinions on colonialism and slavery as a young person would or should have um, nowadays. So I think it's been really eye-opening for me um, and prompted me to research into this more and keep talking about it to make sure that these voices are heard. Yeah, I think definitely this has been a really great opportunity Yeah, to talk about this topic, which is you know such such a difficult one, um, but so interesting. And I think, yeah, I think it's what is really... I think exciting about this is that this is just the beginning of conversations mm. and our conversation we have today is just the beginning of you know real meaningful discourse on uh, yeah this topic yeah I think it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future definitely yeah yeah if there's something that the listeners could take away from this it's definitely to maybe try and start these discussions with like your friends or family or people that you know because it is really important to get it out into like the society i think also an important takeaway point is to trust your own judgment of what's right and wrong these books as we've seen are things to be taken with a pinch of salt to read deeper into them and to only read them in context with a broader knowledge of history and making our own interpretations is what this is all about that is a great point to end on 
Um, so I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much to everyone for listening. And um, we really hope you enjoyed this episode of Storying History, Literary Voices. A massive thank you to our guests again, uh, Brid van der Veen and Hilary Baker, thank for you. coming to chat to me today about these really interesting works. Thank you so much for having us, Elsie. Yeah, it's been such an interesting experience. Thank you very much. It's been an honour. Yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you again next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.